I don't know if it has occurred to anybody yet, but the question that often when we go through a lot of those details is, does this matter to my life? Has that ever, I mean, for me sometimes when we're, we're studying either, if it's a Sunday school lesson that's deep or something at school or a sermon and it's kind of something like, like the Trinity. Remember that? Right? When we, we got the Trinity solved in, what was it, about 45 minutes? When those types of things, sometimes we know we may be interested in it, or like the argument from intelligent design or DNA, and how do we how do we understand that and God's existence or creation? And sometimes it seems like those things are separated out here, and my life is here. Like, how is that going to affect me in my relationships? How is that going to help me with my job? I want to encourage all of us to think that what we truly believe about God and about His Son is the most applicable thing to our life. Because when all of us enter that dark night of the soul, okay, it, it may, be, may be cancer or the prospect, the possibility, even if it's a 1%, or, or if it's that, that family disaster that just hits the fan, when it all comes to where the rubber hits the road, the one thing that's going to, we could say, apply most is who we believe God to be. So when we study some of this stuff, and it may seem almost almost academic, like we're in a classroom, or it may seem like philosophical or, or, or kind of pie in the sky, it is those truths that we learn from God's word about who he is that is the most important thing we can learn because Johnny, Johnny Hunt, and I thought this was so wise, he said a Christian is either in a valley they're just coming out of a valley or they're getting ready to enter a valley. And I think that is a absolutely true statement. So I just want to encourage you, you know, some of this stuff, it may seem, you know, like it's, it's, it's the real tough stuff. It's those, it, it is in those times and it's in those studies that we prepare those foundations for knowing that Jesus, like we're going to talk tonight, Last week we talked about he was totally deity. He was God in the flesh. But tonight we're going to look at the humanity of Christ and how that is just a freeing thing when we go through difficult times we're just about ready to go out of our minds. So I want to encourage you with that thought as we go into uh, some of these scriptures. But um, <clears throat> first, number one, as you see on your outline there, we see that Jesus had, when we say that Jesus was human, what we mean is that he had a fully human body. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And the word there, increased, uh, praekoptane, from the Greek, means to move forward to an improved state. It means progress or advance. So what the Bible is saying here is that when Jesus was born, Jesus actually advanced as a normal human being would. And remember that uh, sermon several months ago? Everybody's like, we totally, right? Y'all remember that? That sermon several months ago? But the one on Jesus' missing years. The claim that Jesus, when he was 12, he left Palestine and he went to India to be trained as a guru. And then he came back and kind of like integrated Eastern philosophy with first century Judaism. We looked, took a whole message to try to, to look at what actually happened. But, um, but when Jesus grew up, we looked at one of those uh, reports. It was kind of like first century, uh, we could say, uh, early Jesus type of comics. To where they said that when Jesus was a kid, 
he would go and he would make these clay pigeons or these clay doves out of clay. He would make them come alive and they would fly off. And then if they didn't do what he wanted, he would kill them. And there were kids who came over. Remember that story? The kids who came over and Jesus got mad at them and killed the kids. And then the parents came over and he killed you Just It's just like, like freak child gone very, very, very wrong. Okay? That's not what the scripture says. The Bible says that Jesus increased. Notice what it says, and it may be there on your outline. I know the text is, I'm not sure, or the reference is. But Jesus increased in what? Stature and in favor. Notice here, with, with which, which groups? With God and man. It's very interesting how the scripture, even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that if you come to the altar... To offer your gift and there remember that your brother has ought or has a problem against you. First leave there thy gift and first be go be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So for Jesus the relationship between our fellow brothers and sisters is directly proportional with our relationship with God. So what that means is really the way that I treat people and the way that I deal with conflict when conflict happens, which it always happens among people. Brothers, sisters, spouses, from what I've been told, sometimes. It's the way that we deal with working those things out that we honor God. So um, what this text says is that Jesus grew as a human would. And this is already creating some questions, I know, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. Um, Philippians. Uh, Jesus also experienced hunger. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, remember when he was being tempted by Satan. Uh, he also experienced fatigue in John chapter 4 verse 6. He experienced thirst when he was on the cross. He declared, I thirst. He also experienced, obviously as we know, death. John chapter 19 verse 34. So it's kind of gruesome because it talks about the spear going into his side. Now let's stop here for just a, a, a second and ask the question, if Jesus was not fully a human, then why does the Bible make reference to Jesus experiencing the things that humans experience? Especially the downsides of human nature. Hunger. You ever been to that point where it's just like, I mean, you could find that french fry under the seat from McDonald's five years ago, and you're just, you're just gonna, I mean, gnawing it for a few minutes to get it softened up, but you're gonna eat that joker, right? Like, seriously, ravenously hungry. And then think it, seriously though, think about fatigue. Y'all just finished up with the semester, with college, okay? Think about when you've had to work overtime, and then work overtime, and overtime. I'm sure Ms. Sharon knows something about fatigue with having to go to the board meetings that go till the wee hour, late hours of the night. I mean, it's those times that, that, that you're just like, I, if I were, if I didn't have, if I was not slapping myself driving, and I've done this before, I would literally fall asleep at the wheel. Have you ever been there? Like total, total, total fatigue. Jesus experienced fatigue. He experienced thirst. So just right here, that means that when I may get frustrated when I experience those things, I know that Jesus has already been there. So that's a comfort in itself. So number two, uh, we know first off that Jesus had a fully human body. Number two, he had a fully human mind or fully human psychology. Number one, uh, Matthew 9, 36-38, Jesus feels love and compassion. 
It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. So here's what Jesus says to do. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I'm just stop right here. Just a little exegetical insight. So if Jesus looked upon people who were lost and he was moved with compassion, it doesn't just mean that he felt sorry for them, but whenever you see the word compassion in the New Testament, it literally means being moved from the inward part of the bowels. That's the way that they would say being moved from your heart. It's not just, I wish I could help that person who's starving, but it's, I'm going to do something about it. So if Jesus' response was seeing lost people was compassion that motivated him to do something about it. I believe this is there in your notes. Could we say that compassion toward the lost is Christ-like, but coldness towards the lost is what? Demonic? Anything else? Anything come to mind when when Jesus was... Now, here's Jesus. He was visibly moved with compassion to the point to telling us, guys, when you see this, pray to God that he'll send people out there. I've always, always been mystified by the church. I've talked to people from different churches and different pastors. And when it comes to things like evangelism or, 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 or social ministry or maybe a block party, or VBS, a mission trip, the difference in the percentage of the people who do that compared to Sunday morning attendance. I know we're all preaching to the choir on this subject, Wednesday night Bible study, but I just think that it's very, very, very ironic in the U.S. today that there is a, there are a lot of people who attend church. The question is, how many people are laborers? Labors for what? Trying to lead people to Christ. There's different angles to take on that. There's people who shoot. There's people who carry bullets, right? But if there is no moving from the inward part of the bowels, the seat of the emotions, the essence of the person, to do something about the lost, whether they be in India or Costa Rica or here, then the question is, does the person have the heart of Christ? That's a very, very probing and for me a convicting, convicting question. So right here we see that Jesus was moved with compassion. So for me to follow Christ would be to move, be moved in the same way. And number two, in Mark fifteen thirty four, Jesus also feels felt loneliness. He said, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" So if you're talking to a person, they feel very lonely, point into this text. Say, Jesus was there as well. Also in John chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, Jesus also feels grief. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now let's stop right here. How many of you have ever heard people say, I come to church and it seems like everybody's life is perfect. It's like everybody's got this smile, nobody has a bad day. Here's Jesus. He was deeply moved in his spirit, and Jesus was greatly 
troubled. Is there anything wrong with being greatly troubled? Not if it's about the right thing. And here's, and the, the narrative continues in verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, the leaders, see how he loved him. Exclamation point. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So here you see the picture, not of somebody who shows up on the scene that says, Hey guys, I was the virgin and I am the virgin born son of God. I am the pre-incarnate word of God from John 1.1 that will be written here in a few years. And I No, you see Jesus deeply moved by death. I don't, any, any, any thoughts that come to your mind on that? I mean, when I was studying for this, that, that, that was very moving in itself that Jesus, the Son of God, was deeply troubled. He knew he was raise What's that? He knew he was raise Lazarus. Yeah. Yeah. He was right. With compassion for, for their suffering. Troubled by the person dying, he's troubled because their loved ones are now without this person. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that bothers him. That should move us to compassion when we see people in pain or or hurting. Absolutely, absolutely. One of my professors at Liberty, Dr. Habermas, who lost his wife back in the mid '90s to cancer. He, he said he told his kids, he had four kids, and they were all teenage and, and younger. He said, weep for yourselves. It's okay, because you've lost your mom until you, know, you go to be with her, because I think all of them had been saved at that point. He says, but there's no reason to weep, like you're saying, for your mom. Because she had trusted in Christ, and she is in the presence of the Lord. But it's a strong, strong thing. I think that, especially in times of grief, when people lose... Um, friends and family members. Justin came up this past uh, Friday through Saturday to do uh, get a little bit of interview for Jordan's documentary, My Brother Who Died of Cancer. And one of the things that I said in there is that one, the hardest part for me going through that time where he died um, was the viewing. It was the viewing. Do you know why? Not seeing him there in a casket. It was hearing all this. The stupid things. I don't, I don't mean just throw that, that, that word out there. But just, I mean, the, the things that people say, I mean, the, the one-liners that you're just like, I, I mean, and all, you know, coming by and saying, well, he's in a better place, and, you know, God's still on the throne, and my grandma, she was 95, and she died three months ago. I know exactly how you feel. And you're, you know, you're, you're just imagining it. And I think Jesus is an incredible, the ultimate example of what to do in this text, John 11, 13, or 33 through 38, on what to do and how to do it when someone loses a loved one. Jesus wept. We didn't say anything. What's that? Boom. Yeah, and here's Jesus, right? I mean, 
Jesus is the Son of God. The, the words that he uttered were the very words of God, but Jesus did not, exactly what you're saying, feel that that was the time to try to solve the whole problem of death and make people feel better by one-liners. So this, I mean, this is so, so practical when we look at the humanity of Christ that when we interact with people, I think the best thing to do, and if you're a crier, cry. Some people are not. But just to be there and show the person that, 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 we, that we care. And so it's just a powerful, powerful text. Um, Jesus was fully human. He experienced the full gamut of human emotions. Number three would be that Jesus did, even though he had human emotions, Jesus did have a very high level of knowledge. Luke chapter 9, verse 47. He knows the thoughts of his friends. An argument arose among them, speaking of the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So here we have, once again, the disciples acting like kids, trying to play king of the hill. Jesus knows their hearts. But not only do you know the the thoughts of his Friends, his disciples, but also in Luke 6, 8, he knew the thoughts of his enemies. But he knew their thoughts, and they said to the man with the withered hand, he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here, and he rose and stood there. So that's one of the reasons why it was always tough on the um, scribes and Pharisees to beat Jesus in a debate, right? If he knows what you're going to say, and he knows what you're thinking in your heart, you, you might as well hang it up. So also, and this is where it gets kind of sticky, we know that Jesus did have limited knowledge. This sounds heretical when we first state it, but look at at Mark 9.21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. This refers to a, a boy who had a demon. So Jesus is inquiring as to how long it's been. Also, Mark 13.32 Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So according to these two texts, it looks like there are some things that Jesus didn't know. So then the question is, does Jesus' limited knowledge, just from these two texts, diminish his deity? Let's go to our key text tonight, Philippians chapter uh, 2, beginning there in verse number 5. The Bible says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, and here's the key, here's here's the decoder ring, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So who does it say subjected himself? Verse 7, but made who? Himself nothing. So here's the thing. Jesus voluntarily and temporarily subjected himself to the confines of of being in human flesh, right? Jesus did that. He subjected himself. 
But this does not demonstrate his deity because it's like Jesus is saying this. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and play the game. But I'm going to voluntarily limit myself. You could say tie one hand behind his back for a time. For what purpose? To become one of us so that he could die for us. So not only does this not diminish Jesus' deity, the fact that he came to live as a human and to grow as a human, to feel thirst and fatigue and pain and death, but it actually, I think, it increases Jesus' claim as God because he was the one who subjected himself. So it wasn't like he lost anything, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this specific thing for a specific purpose for my people who will be saved. And to me, that does not limit or decrease his deity, that increases it. Because not only is he still God, but it's kind of like he wore our shoes, right? He walked in our shoes and he suffered the things that we deal with, but he never responded in the wrong way. Any, any questions there? I'll be really clear because a lot of times if people are trying to tell you that Jesus is just a person, they will use those two texts. What he did go along with um, the nature of God anyway, like that's what he would have done naturally, because that's his nature, is to do whatever it takes because God is love, so that's what it took, and he knew that, so he subjected himself and did what it took so that we could have eternal life with him. Hmm. So if he's following his nature, how could it decrease? Hmm. Good point, good point. Yeah, yeah, I guess in that sense it would be like in just an, an extension of his his love and, and a demonstration of that. And in a sense, too, that's a great point, Whitney, that, that the fact that, and we'll get to the virgin birth here in just a second, but the fact that Jesus came, and this is this is so huge. I'm actually thinking about preaching through the book of Philippians. I don't know whether to do that or an Old Testament book for the summer yet. We're still figuring that out. But, but I mean, it is, the, these terms in Philippians are pregnant. When it says that he made himself nothing, it's literally, I mean, the, the picture here is you have a person who has everything, the right to everything, who says, you know what? I'm giving all that up to suffer how does uh, verse 8 end? Even death on a cross to suffer the worst type of pain, the ultimate rejection for your father to pay for the sins of those who hate you. That, for me, that is the ultimate demonstration that you are the one who gets to carry the God card, right? I mean, not only did you say that you are God, because here's the thing too, that I think we need to think about if God never came, never sent his son to pay for our sins, would he still be God? Well, ultimately, we're lawbreakers, right? And he owes us justice. But when he came and he demonstrated his love and his power by raising Christ from the dead, that demonstrates for all eternity. Not only does he still retain the title of God, but he has given such a demonstration of love and of compassion and of grace that anything we could ever do would just be lost in that. 
I mean, any, you know, any, it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like if, if we were to go to, to, to see the Sistine Chapel, okay, and we were there and looking up at all that, that magnificent architecture, and then I, for me, and y'all know I'm not a very good artist, if I got out my little, uh, artist book and I began to draw, and I did the best job I could do, it would be like that. Even, even if we all give our lives as martyrs for Christ. Even if it comes to that point in the U.S. or maybe somewhere around the world when we die for him, that, as much as God could use our sacrifice for his glory, I mean, anything I could give to him based upon Philippians 2, 5 through 8, that he who had everything gave it all up to be nothing for those who deserve nothing. I mean, anything I could ever do would just be uh, in such... So overwhelmed by Jesus' example. So I just give that text to you, you know, for anybody who ever says that Jesus was just a person, that he had limited knowledge. Let me say, let me show you why for a certain amount of years when he was here, he limited his knowledge for this purpose. And you can lead him to Jesus just from Philippians chapter 2. So that's a powerful, powerful text. Um, let's go on to the virgin birth and stir that hornet's uh, nest up before we close. There's actually two references in the New Testament. <laughs> Matthew 1 and Luke 1 that refer to the virgin birth uh, specifically. And also Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Uh, we mentioned this last week. There, when we were debating about which Baptist conference to be associated with or convention. Remember the one thing that we read from the slide? Uh, did you do that part, Ben? About the professor who said virgin birth only mentioned twice. It's not a big deal. Did I do that? I can't remember. Okay. Okay. It was, it was a while back, last summer or so. But here's the question. Before we, before we get into this, what are some responses, because we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, amen, right? The authority, the ultimate authority for all matters, faith and doctrine. For someone who says, well, the virgin birth is only mentioned twice in the Gospels, so why should we establish it as a cornerstone of our faith? It's only mentioned twice. What may be some responses that we could have? Other than the response of, well, what's that? You're stupid. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you're stupid, but we all know that's true. So, yeah. Which is not usually the best way to lead people to Christ, but, you know. Yeah. What, what do you think? What would be some responses? Well, let's mention in the Old Testament about the virgin. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. So Isaiah seven fourteen. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. So so there's precedent there, right? It's not like just something New Testament writers say. What's well, I don't know. Virgin birth sounds good to me. Right? Wasn't wasn't that? That's like uh, I talked to a guy I used to work with him. He didn't believe them tied, and he said uh, that's the Old Testament kind. It's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. I told him, I said, you better get your Bible and start reading. Because you'll find it twice in the New Testament. Mm. Mm. Where Jesus was condemning the Pharisees about giving their tithe, their uh, the things that they give. Uh, right. The spices. and you know. He said, not that you shouldn't have done this. But you should have, but you should have done the other two. Mm. I'm paraphrasing. That, sure, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, good point. Good point. I actually heard a sermon one time. It was called Tithing is for Wimps. 
about about the New Testament. The tithe is just is just assumed, and New Testament believers give um, so much above and beyond that, especially for for missions. But yeah, good good point. Um, let's just go through that. Uh, Old Testament reference is Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen. Uh, if you have an ESV study Bible. Um, this is a good time to have one. And if you don't have one and you'd like to, we can order those um, for you here. Or you can get them off of Amazon. It's like 25 bucks, and it's the best study Bible I've ever come across. They have an absolutely awesome note here that goes for almost a page and a half here. I mean, it is just awesome. Um, but let me read the, the passage, and then we'll try to break it down. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Bingo. All right. So that is the text. So here is the argument that a lot of liberal scholars will bring to us, backwoods, Southern Baptist, ignorant, fundamentalist evangelicals, all right, who believe the Bible is actually the word of God. They will say, and this is on your, on your outline, they will say, um, in the Hebrew, the word for virgin here is Alma, which says, literally translates it, young maiden. So therefore, it's not saying that it has to be virgin birth. Now, there's a couple of responses that we could take here. Number one, the response that we give is that in the Hebrew culture, young woman is always associated with being chaste. Right? If you were not chaste when you got married, it was a big, big, big deal. In fact, we could go into the detail of Mary and Joseph, about how Joseph was going to put her away. That just was not something that was done. So you can't accuse a liberal scholar of saying, well, you're trying to impose a 21st century Right? Structure on that that says, well, it's not any big deal. I mean, you've got to, you've got to really specify that it's a virgin. Well, back then, young woman was synonymous with that unless she was a woman of ill repute. Second response, and this is on your outline as well. The Greek word, right? The Old Testament Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And the LXX right there, that is the code for uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. What word did the translators use for the Hebrew word Alma? They used the Greek word Parthenos, which means specifically virgin. Very interesting, isn't it? Guess which word the New Testament writers chose when they wrote the New Testament in Greek? The same word that was used for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Yeah, Ben? One other thing I'll just throw out there. I did a, actually did a word study on this with my, nice. my professors in, in college. Something that liberal scholars would say is if they intended, if Isaiah had intended to convey virgin, he would have used the Hebrew word Bethlehem. Right, right. But in fact, Bethlehem occurs other places in Scripture, not always necessarily referring to a virgin. So it's the fallacy that that's the word you would use for a virgin. Good point. Good point. And in fact, I mean, any you know, we go back to our, our language, any language class when we had as a kid, you can never prove that a word always means this. You have to look at the context, right? It depends on how you say it. Even like my mom, 
growing up, if my dad was not in the spirit, as they would call it, she's like, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. So it's, it's context. So here, here, here's what I think is the best response. That the reason why Isaiah used the word for young woman, Alma, is because Isaiah 7 is a double fulfillment. Look over in um, chapter 8 in verse 3. Now at this time there was an evil guy named Ahaz. So this is a prophecy that I believe, number one, refers to Jesus. But it also refers to, in the original context, the son that would be born. It says in 8.3, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name uh, Mahershalalhashbaz. Okay? So this was... That would be an awesome, awesome name. CJ, you got that written down for your future son? Okay, good. Um, but this, what it's referring to... And this, this is a, I think it's a great point that Isaiah was writing to King Ahaz about a son that would be born within that time, but was it just that son? Look back at chapter 7, verse 14, and you shall call his name what? Okay, if you're going to call a kid literally, and and this is in the Hebrew culture, so they didn't throw on the term God flippantly. If you're going to call someone God with us, then that's not your average kid. So that way you can undercut that that charge that the liberal scholars say is that they didn't use the word for virgin with saying that it was a double fulfillment, but even within using the word Alma for young um, young woman, there's the assumption within Hebrew culture, unless you show otherwise, that she is a virgin. And then you tie that back in with Matthew and Luke, and they both use the word, the Greek word for virgin that was translated from Isaiah 7.14 from the Hebrew Alma. So either way, either way, um, you can establish the virgin birth. From the text of Scripture, two verses, even going back, like you said, Brother Bill, to, to the Old Testament. Any, any questions there? One thing I would say before we, before we close this up with, with the application is if someone says, well, it only says this many times in Scripture this. Say, well, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Yeah. I thought you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. Well, one time, unless, and, here, and here's where, where a lot of times liberal scholars, they, they tie themselves up because when they make that claim, then you, you can say this. Well, how many times did Paul say something about there is no Jew, no Greek, no male or female? How many times does Jesus have to say in the Gospels anything for it to be true, if this is God's word? And if we're actually reading it, Honestly, and not trying to twist it around our own ideas, then one time should probably be enough. Because the Bible was not written for people who want to make it say what they want it to say. You, you can tell that, especially if this person has education. One thing, I don't think we should ever be intimidated by people who have degrees. Because a lot of times this is the way it happens. Well, and when you begin to share the gospel or say, you know, I believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. Well, but I have a degree. 
Well, if you have the degree, then show me why my arguments are wrong. Right? I mean, I'm dumb. I'm ignorant. Please show me. Enlighten me, Buddha. But maybe you don't want to be smart aleck like that. But I just, it just rubs me so wrong when I've seen that from, from people who lose arguments, but because they earned a degree 20 years ago, then they don't have to argue their point at all. So, anyway, we're going to move on. Okay, so how important is the virgin birth? There are four things. Number one, it is a reminder that our salvation is supernatural. Now, imagine if Jesus was just a man who actually attained salvation. All right? Imagine if Jesus was just a human. Really disciplined, but a human nonetheless. What would that do to the, quote, moral of our gospel story? And I had a picture of a mountain up here. So imagine if, if this was working and, and we had a mountain. All right, everybody got that? Okay, a mountain. And imagine at the top of that mountain is salvation. What would that do to us with the way that we view salvation if Jesus was just a guy who tried really hard and he crossed all of his T's and dotted all of his I's and he, you know, he did his memory verse every Sabbath day and he went to Hebrew VBS and he just, he was just above and beyond. What would that cause in us our relation to, to salvation or our response to it? Wouldn't be by grace? Definitely. Be by works. Yeah. No grace, all works. Yeah, that's the distinct, that's the absolutely uniquely distinct thing about Christianity. At least if every other religion I know anything about, they're all in one way or another works theology. Mm. Apart from Christianity. Bingo. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't don't y'all think too that this that the fact that Jesus was human but yet deity and what he gave us Salvation is a total gift of grace. Even the New Testament says the gift of faith, it is a gift of grace. Lydia was given the gift of grace. Even Wesley, who said that you can lose your salvation, said in Ephesians 2.89, For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is the gift of God. He says that faith's even the gift of God. So if God doesn't give you faith, you don't have any faith to appropriate. That's Wesley. It's not even Calvin or someone like that. So, so for me... The fact that it's totally supernatural makes me very dependent upon Jesus and not dependent upon myself. In fact, it causes me to take a step back and say, Jeff can do nothing if Christ does not give him strength. But through Christ, I can do all things. So number number two, how important is the virgin birth? It is a reminder that God's salvation is fully a gift of grace. If he wasn't born of a virgin, he would have been sinful. Sure. So uh, he had to be born of a virgin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Number three. Evidence. Um, it, how important is the virgin birth? It is evidence of the uniqueness of Jesus. This is huge. Because at the meeting yesterday, um, Mr. Gresham said, Jesus is no more God than any other man. And if that is true, then what it's going to tell me is that my life, like you you said earlier, in order for me to be okay with God, I've got to try, try, and then try again. And really, who is the focus upon if that is to be the way I'm supposed to live? And then my 
Christianity turns into a selfish festival of Jeff trying to be better and better and better, which is either going to cause me to look at other people and despair, say I can never be as good as that person, or it's going to cause me to look down upon people. And both ways it can end very badly. Number four and finally is virgin birth is evidence of the sovereignty and the power of God over nature. What do you do if somebody says it is biologically impossible for a virgin to give birth to a son? Because I don't know about you, but I have not heard very many reports from Carillion or Lewis Gale that, you know, we've got a girl in here and she's never been with a man and she is pregnant with child and she's about to give birth. I, we don't know what, I mean. But man And that's a great point. Notice the word that Ben Ben used that God would suspend the natural laws. David Hume and all the atheists and skeptics say that a miracle would violate and blow apart the natural laws. Well, not if God is the one who's created it. All he has to do is exactly what you said, suspend it for a certain time for a specific purpose, which in this case it was to bring the Son of God into the world unharmed. And and I guess we could say um, uncorrupted by sin. So here's something that I want to close on this note. The fact that, like you said, Bill, that Jesus was not, didn't have a human father, so he did not have a sin nature, makes Jesus fully human. Adam and Eve, when they were created, no sin nature. Fully, fully human. So that is consolation to me that it is okay to be exhausted and to be real about it. Amen? Not put on the fake church smile. It means that it is altogether good and right to be moved with compassion and even be deeply troubled at death. I'm not speaking of, of our own death, but just to it, the, the things that it, that it causes. But what Jesus' humanness, I think, teaches to us is that in order for us to connect with people, it's being real for the power of God. And through salvation, He saves us but he enables us to be truly human and truly real with people. Not stoic, not Clint Eastwoods, and on one hand, not allowing ourselves to be governed by our emotions, but Jesus, the perfect man, perfect deity, perfect um, son of God, demonstrates through his actions what it means to be fully human.